This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Radio Times podcast with me, Kellyanne Taylor. In this series, I sit down on the Radio Times sofa with a different celebrity guest every week to talk all things telly. What do they watch? Where do they watch it? And who do they watch with? Each week, we glimpse into my guest's life as seen through the prism of TV and from the vantage point of their sofas. We also delve into their own glittering careers on screen. This week's guest is Sky's political editor, the formidable Beth Rigby. Known for her robust interviews with politicians from Boris Johnson to Nicola Sturgeon, she has also welcomed the likes of Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, Olena Zelenska and Dama Thompson onto her show, Beth Rigby Interviews. In this episode, Beth talks about how Westminster felt like a boys club when she first joined and how female broadcasters face more scrutiny than their male counterparts. If I am robust in an interview, I might get really criticised by some people for it. And I'll watch a male colleague, a male contemporary, do pretty much the same thing as I've just done. And that's kind of completely okay for that person. And to be fair, some of my male colleagues acknowledge that. Plus, I finally meet my TV soulmate and we talk about our collective love of Sex and the City and Friends. Beth is joining live from the newsroom, so please ignore the flurry of emails and background studio noise. Beth Rigby, welcome to the Radio Times podcast. Thank you very much. I love a podcast. I'm very excited about this. Yes, well, I love your podcast. But before we come on to talk about your glittering career, can we first and foremost start with, what is the view from your sofa? The view from my sofa? Uh, the view from my sofa is my much beloved uh, mid-century modern sideboard full of rubbish. Uh, and uh, I've got a big cheese plant on top of it with some uh, candles because I like to have some candles lit while I'm relaxing watching telly. And then on the wall are some sort of pictures that I've collected on my travels. And then the, my favourite thing that I've put up uh, that is just above my telly is my mum's old school site because my mum was a head teacher and when she left the school it was a middle school in High Wycombe um, the names changed now uh, they gave her her sign and and um, my mum died a few years ago and this sign was in my dad's garage in their garage and I said I'll take that sign and so now my mum's sign is above my telly her school sign so that's like my favourite possession under above yeah. my second favourite possession, which is my television, on my third favourite possession, which is my sideboard. 
I love that. And that's a really, really beautiful thing to have in your house. It's lovely. Um, what do you enjoy watching on television? Oh, I love watching television. I'm surprised you have time, to be honest. I watch a lot of television. So I watch a lot of news because obviously I like watching um, cookery programmes on sap at the weekends. And then I watch... I mean, I do use television as a way of, of switching out of... Um, of what I do. So I watch a lot of box sets. So, but I tend to binge watch, so it can be dangerous because depending on how good it is, like Slow Horses ruined me for a week at work because I got so into it that I end up going, I'll just watch one more episode, just one more. And then it's 3 a.m. And I'm like, Beth, you've got to get up in four hours, get the kids (laughs) to school and go to work. (laughs) What are you doing? So I've I've just binge watched that. Happy Valley, I just did that. Um, I'm, Succession's about to start again. I can't wait. Um, the morning show, absolutely loved it. Uh, I've also got into lately, and um, um, my my f- my friend's husband's because he's also very into football. He thinks it's a sort of work escapism. But I've got become obsessed with football. Obsessed, yes, because my son got really into Arsenal, and then now I've got really into Arsenal. And now I actually watch football as well, like live games. And they're not even Arsenal. I don't know what I'm doing. But, so so I watch, I've got really into watching football. And then I liked, the, I, and, and, I, and part of that was when I watched the All or Nothing documentary, you know, the Amazon one on Arsenal. Yeah. So yeah, I watch a lot of television. I love that. One of my favourite treats is when Arsenal ladies plays at the stadium because it's just down the road from and me. And you go, love it. And it's so cheap and it's a really good day out. Yeah, so much fun. Heartily recommend. Who controls the remote in your household? Well, depending on what <laughs> what child is, is in the room at the time, in sort of a particular order, not me. I mean, it goes sort of child one, child two, Angelo, and then me. <laughs> Although Angelo would say that I control the remote. But I often just leave and go onto my laptop anyway and take myself upstairs to get my own way anyhow. Um, <laughs> but I don't really control anything in my household. I like to think I do, but everyone else is in charge, really. <laughs> I'm not there enough. Is there a series that you come back to time and time again? Yeah, yeah. I Actually, there's two things that sometimes if I'm feeling nostalgic or a bit sort of weedy I love watching Friends I just it just it it just makes me feel good and it sort of takes me back to a sort of a time in my life when I was you know when when it sort of came out and I was a sort of young we were at university I think so I and and also I I loved Sex and the City when it came out and I sometimes watch that again it's my favourite programme ever. Yeah, and I'm I'm waiting for... What's it? What's the... And just like that. Just like that. So now I'm waiting for the... So I started watching, I know about you, the first episode, I was like, this is terrible. Like, the, the first 15 minutes, I was like, this is awful. Mm. Like, it's an awful parrot. Like, they shouldn't have done it. And then, of course, the way it evolves is really smart. So... Um, I, I'm, I'm looking. They're, they're, I'm, I keep actually searching online to find out the actual launch date, but I haven't got it yet. So, so I watch Sex in the City sometimes. I also like watching The West Wing, but of course I do. <laughs> like, how could I not? I don't. T- things I don't tend to watch things again because I always want to the next thing. 
But my comfort food is probably friends number one, yeah. I love that. Have you seen on Instagram that um, all the pictures Sarah Jessica Parker keeps putting up with Aiden? I have seen them. I have seen them. And then there was all the thing about whether or not she should have got together with the Parisian guy whose name I can't remember. Oh, yeah, from the final series. Yeah. But poor Aiden. I mean, she broke his heart and maybe she's going to break it. Anyway, I'm... The only thing that is unfinished business is the kind of Samantha thing in all of this. I know. Right? It is a real shame. It's it's a real shame. But um yeah, so I'm I've I'm like that. I, I also love the morning show and I'm very looking forward to that. Um I'm looking forward to that coming back. You can tell I like telly, can't yeah, you? Yeah, I can. I can. Let's travel back in time. So you were born in Colchester in Essex. What's your first ever TV memory? My first TV... I mean, this is not... Like, don't judge my parents. (laughs) My first TV... Or my early TV memories, really, are just... My parents just let me watch things. I should want Dallas and Dynasty. My mum was obsessed. Obsessed. She used to let me watch it with... I don't know what she was thinking, anyway. So I I remember watching Dallas and Dynasty and thinking it was... You know, like, they'd come down the staircase in a ball gown. I thought this was the best thing ever. And also, I sort of remember watching kind of Kenny Everett I mean it was great you know I used to watch all those like Monty Python so I just used to my parents just used to watch stuff I mean I wasn't a toddler I was a child (laughs) um, but I used to watch that and then um but I don't have an early memory I do remember watching Dallas and Dynasty with my mum and it being a very happy thing for me also I think I just thought I was so lucky that she was letting me stay up late to do it and then the thing we used to watch, I mean, as children, well, as children into teenagers, my brothers were Grange Hill, obviously. Brilliant. And then Neighbours and Home and Away, every day after school. Back home, Neighbours, Home and Away. I feel like I found my... I've been doing this podcast for a while and I have never shared such similar telly tastes with someone. I found my TV soulmate. It's very You've nice. got good taste, as have I, then. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> tell me about what you were like as a teenager. As a teenager, probably yeah. really annoying, like I probably <laughs> am now, I suppose. As a teenager, I don't know, really. <laughs> what was I like as a teen? I don't know. I'd say you'd have to ask my friends or my brother, but I'd, I'm not sure that um, I'd particularly like... What was I like as a teenager? I was quite naughty. <laughs> I was a bit naughty. I was sort of naughty, but I got away with it, whereas my brothers were just naughty and didn't get away with it. Um, I worked hard at school. I did a lot of dancing. I was really, I did, did a lot of dancing. Uh, I did ballet and I did sort of modern dance. So I spent a lot of time doing that. Yeah, I had a fun, I was, I was all right, I suppose. I think I was all right. I just, I was, I was kind of, I was naughty enough, but I kind of always kept on track, if that makes sense. I used to do things. So one thing I did, I'd never told my mum this, but there was a nightclub near where we lived called The Orchard. And back in the day, you could kind of, you know, you, you'd just go in. And I mean, they didn't, I, I don't know if you can do it today. Like, you just used to go in and we'd be like 15, 16 years old. Women. And I used to say to them, I'm staying at my friend's house and I'd change a digit on the on, on her parents' phone. I was, these are the days people didn't have mobile phones. I thought, if my mum ever phones, I'd just say, what do you mean you phoned a 7-1? It was 1-1 and I'd just changed the number. That's really naughty, isn't it? I was thinking if my child did that to me, they'd be in trouble, although we just track their phones. So they. <laughs> so that, that was back in the day. You could, yeah. Let's talk about 
You studied social and political science at Cambridge. You got a first. I did. Very good going. Square. <laughs> <laughs> Not a girly swap. I love it. I love actually, it. Actually, actually, Kelly, I have to say, I was one of those kids though that when you asked me, go. I wasn't. I was one of those kids that I don't know if you have sort of friends or you like this way. I didn't. I did okay at my GCSEs, but I didn't ace it all. I was never like a star star student. I was always really good at the things I wanted to do, and then I was less good at other things. So when I sort of started my A levels, and then I did history, English, and politics, and they were all things I was really into. That was when I kind of academically sort of went up a gear, and that was when I got into Cambridge, etc. So it wasn't a it was sort of, it wasn't a, I don't know, a smooth sort of... Yeah. Like, if you'd said to my teachers when I was 15, Beth's going to apply to Cambridge and get a, 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 a place, they'd have been like, no, she's not. <laughs> when you were at Cambridge, or where did you get your first inkling that you wanted to go into journalism? So, I had this thing when I was at university, and I, I, I there were a few things I was like, should I should I be a journalist? Should I be an academic? There was that. That's why I sort of did an MLA. And then I also thought about, should I try and go into law and, and sort of train to be a barrister? And I guess all of the things around it was, I loved debate. I loved talking about politics. I studied it. I liked arguments and I enjoyed ideas. So all of those things were were kind of in my mind. And then I, I, I know that some people kind of go, yeah, I, I always wanted to be a journalist and I was sort of 10 years old and I was working on the school paper and then I worked. I wasn't, I wasn't like that. Um, I... I don't, and I'm, I mean, I remember Michael Heseltine, there's that story about, you know, he planned out his life, like by 20, I'll do this, and then I'm going to be a millionaire, and then by 40, I'll be the prime minister. I mean, I, I never had a plan in that way. I just sort of, if you like, I did kind of what I loved doing, and then the sort of opportunities followed from that. So, I mean, I did do some I did sort of set up a magazine when I was at, when I was at university and I did that. Um, then I left and I went to teach abroad. I taught English abroad for a year because I hadn't ever lived abroad and I thought I've got to cut the apron strings. I've got to go abroad and, and be my own person a bit. Um, and then the reason I got into journalism was my friend Patrick Barkham, who is now um, a writer at The Guardian and he writes brilliant books on, 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 on natural history. He had got an internship at the FT. He suggested to the person that was doing those, Joanna Rollo, who basically kind of gave me my break, um, that she might take me on as an intern. And then I, she took me on and then I got my foot in the door and that was it. I was off. I never looked back. They gave me a traineeship and then I was off on this journey. And when I was doing that, in the couple, sort of a year into working at the FT, I was like, well, I still want to do this master's because there was still part of me that thought, do I actually want to go into academia? And I did a master's and actually that was really helpful because having to write a sort of 70,000 word dissertation, I was like, don't want to do that because I got into the news right and I liked I liked the hit of it as well like mm. you 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 do it in the morning you're finished by there's a ten, tangible result either a website story or a, you know back then we were doing like ft.com print so so that was really then then I did my MA and I finished my MA and that was I was like right okay I'm gonna go and do journalism and that and, the, and that was it I kind of had my foot in the FT and carried on and you did a number of roles uh, 
chief political correspondent in 2010, mm. deputy political editor in 2013. You moved to The Times and then in 2016 moved to Sky News. Mm. What enticed you about broadcast or why, why did you decide to move from print to broadcast? It's good. I mean, it's a good question because, you know, in my, in my general vein of being rubbish at planning my career, I mean, I really, I'm nearly 50 now. I really need to sort of <laughs> get better at it. I mean, really, I, I worked at the FT for nearly 17, 18 years. It's a long time. Okay, so I, I had a career at the FT and I got to my late 30s and I thought, I can't, I've, I can't, I'm either going to leave or I'm going to be here for my life and I don't want to be in one place for my entire life. Like I, I wanted to test myself. Yeah, I wanted to, like, have I become successful at the FT because I've just been here so long that everyone else has left so you've kind of moved like, or are you actually a talented, you know, I just, I had that. So I, I, I moved to the Times and I changed, so I changed paper, which was the best thing I ever did because it kind of gave me a new lease of life and, um, it sort of made me realise, like, you, you're good at what you do. And it was sort of self-affirming, so that made me feel good. And by this point, I'm, I'm, I was called on nearly 40. And, um, and then the television thing came about because there were, I had thought about it in the sense of there were two things. One, I'd been a print journalist for a long time and I wanted to try something else, right? Mm. So I moved papers and then I still wanted to try something else. So I thought, okay, it's not it's actually kind of the medium perhaps um and then the second thing was that in political journalism it was the broadcasters that were making the news if you like like we yeah. we would make news by chasing stories down and you you know splash on something and you'd make the government move position but you know the interviews with prime ministers the press conferences the the moments of big jeopardy the big yeah. events the general elections as political journalists you were watching other people ask the questions or talk about it and i thought actually maybe i'd like to be the person that's doing that so there it was in my mind and um and then again it was lucky in the sense that um esme wren who now runs channel four and, and amber de botton who now is the director of comms at number 10 they, I knew Amber for a long time because she was in the lobby with me in, in Westminster. And I remember having a coffee with her one Christmas and she said, Beth, if you want to do telly, Sky would like to have you, but you've got to, you, you've got to make the jump or you get, you're going to do it, you're not doing it. And I, I was quite reluctant because I'd only just started at the Times and I really liked working for John Witherow. And I, you know, and, and I just thought, actually, Beth, do it. So it kind of happened by chance in a in a way and mm. then and then I got into Sky in May 2016 so it's just before the Brexit referendum and then politics just exploded and I never looked back. What was it like seeing yourself on screen for the first time? Hated it, still hate it. Really? Yeah I find it really hard to watch myself back which is difficult because actually as a craft you mm. should watch yourself back. I know. Yeah because you, you 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 work but I, I find it really difficult um to watch myself back it makes me uncomfortable in what sense is it just seeing yourself is it a physical thing no, or I just, it's no, like I, a... just I just um because I'm really critical so uh, uh, all I'll see is uh so sometimes actually I do sometimes if I think I haven't done something well at all I force myself to watch it back because it's never as bad as I thought it was but I just I always there's I always think that I could have done it better, which is kind of what drives me as well. So it's both a blessing and a curse, if you see what I mean. Because, but yeah, it was. Um, it's very strange 
being on television. It, mm. it is strange. And then the thing that was the weirdest thing about all of it, and it did it happened over many years, not not right at the beginning, and particularly during the pandemic, because we were doing those press conferences and they were on all of the channels, was when you start to get recognised in your daily life. And I found yeah. that really strange. Because I felt like I was a totally anonymous person. And then, you 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 know, you'd be... St- I mean, people are very lovely. I mean, it's always lovely for someone to stop and say they like watching you or they like you do, but it, that's very weird. But interesting, Kellyanne, pe- people often recognise me not from... Because I look quite different when I'm not on telly because I put... There's a lot of makeup and, you know, there's an outfit and there's a style and a vibe. But people often recognise me by my voice, not how I look. You do have a very distinctive voice. Yeah, when I'm not on, so people will hear me talking. Angela always tells me off because I've got a really loud voice. And then they'll recognise me. So that was the weird part of it. But I mean, it's love. I mean, there's nothing nice if someone comes up and says, you know, I like what you do or you help me understand things. That's like the best compliment you could have. Because So that's been a really nice part of being on television, which is, you know, in Westminster, you can all, you often end up you can end up reporting for Westminster, like, you know, for your peer group and for MPs. And then when you're on television, what you always have to remember is you're not talking to SW1. I'm just looking, I can see the Houses of Parliament out the window here. You're, you're talking to the viewer and you're you're meant to be their sort of clever friend, if you like, who is trying to distill what's going on in Westminster so they better understand yeah. and engage with, with, with politics. So... That that has been a really challenging, actually. It's hard to do that, but that's sort of been the most rewarding thing about being on telly for me, really. Yeah, because, it, I mean, it is complicated. And with politics, you know, dare I use that word that has been so overused, but it, it's been unprecedented. You know, we had Brexit, yeah. then we had COVID, the news cycle, and I mean, yeah. the changing of prime ministers, the news yeah. cycle can be incredibly alienating and, and the political sphere can be incredibly alienating. Yeah. How do you go about making something that can be very difficult to understand, you know, and, and I'm I'm part yeah. of that, um, accessible to the public? Well, I think, so the way, the way I would describe doing it is... And it, it's quite helpful to have been a print journalist and then a broadcast journalist, because when you're writing a story for print, it's all about the detail and, and the narrative, which builds a, a rich tapestry of colour, which you use anecdotes and quotes and you draw lots of information, you paint this intricate and entertaining or informative piece when you're on television you need all of that information that you pick up as a print or you need as much information but your job is then to sort and filter that information and pick out maybe two or three things which basically distills down the essence of the complexity without dumbing down the complexity without dumbing down the story Mm. and that is why it's really hard to do it well anyone can get on telly and talk about stuff endlessly the challenge is is to talk about it in a way that connects with people so what what I try and do when I do it is I think okay I've got so much information but what are the one or two things that matter and why that and, and I need to explain to the viewer why it matters so Say, for example, I was doing the Northern Ireland Protocol today. Um, I, at this point, am not going to go through the details of the deal. The reason that it matters in terms of 
the viewer is it matters in Northern Ireland because it's about can he get the power assembly going again and that matters to the people of Northern Ireland, then it matters to the viewers in terms of the UK government because if it blows up, are we into another iteration of Conservative Party chaos? And then it, it matters, you know, so and, and then it matters to the Labour Party because is this a way that they can grow their poll lead and what does it mean for a general election or what does it mean for a Boris Johnson revival? So you try and frame the story not through the kind of intricate politics of what's going on in the moment, but but how it it, it impacts on people watching. So I think that's sort of the way that you you have to try and do it because ultimately you want people to to be engaged and interested it doesn't matter if you know everything and you're really really clever um if you can't explain it in a way that that, that connects with people it, it's not it's you're not really doing the job i don't think i should do. and then the other thing i try and do kellyanne is sort of with questions at press conferences is is i always try and think well if i'm sitting at home and I'm watching this, what would I want to know? What would be the thing, if I stand back from this or zoom out and don't get bogged down in the back and forth of the politics or the intricacy of the policy, but what does it mean for me or what's the most salient thing? Um, you know, that, that, that that's how you try, that's how I try and frame questions. And all of it is driven by thinking, how can I best represent the viewer or and because I, I feel myself when I do this job I'm a I'm a conduit if you like I'm I'm the person in the middle who is asking questions of a politician to speak to a viewer but I'm also the sort of the I'm also the criticism if you like or the well not the criticism what's the word I'm also the the inquisitor in that you know, you have to you have to robustly challenge and yeah. and and um, interrogate policy rather than than just let it be spun out in a way that a, than a government or a political party would want. So that's kind of my job in the middle, and that's to help better inform viewers. Yeah, so that's how I see the job. I mean, I don't know if I always get it right, but that's how I try and do it. Well, it's, that's interesting because it does lead on to one of the one of my other questions, which is, you know. Do you think that female broadcasters are unfairly criticised, perhaps, or expected to face more criticism than their male counterparts? And I, I'm looking at it through the lens of uh, for not being feminine enough, being too bossy, uh, being aggressive, all terms that are generally mm. banded around women. Yeah, look, I think, I mean, I, I, you know, I think, I don't know if you watched Nicola Sturgeon's um sort of resignation speech the other day where she talked about the sort of misogy the misogyny she'd faced as um a female political leader and you but you only have to she she remarked upon it you only have to think about that daily mail front page when sturgeon and may you know two formidable female leaders are in talks and and the whole front page is about whose you know legs were better you know because they're sort of sitting cross-legged in skirts so yeah of course yeah. of course you get it and and actually there's been a lot of academic research on um on kind of the disproportionate abuse that female politicians and and uh, female broadcasters and journalists get on twitter and social media against male counterparts i get it sometimes that you know if I am robust in an interview, 
uh, I might get really criticised by some people for it. And I'll watch a male colleague, a male contemporary, do pretty much the same thing as I've just done. And that's kind of completely okay for that person. Uh, And to be fair, some of my male colleagues acknowledge that as well. It's not... So, yeah, you definitely... I think I think it's partly about sort of stereotyping about what you expect women to be like compared to men. And, you know, there's been lots of studies and lots of, you know, um, you know female executives would talk about it as well, about kind of, you know, if you're a woman and you're like direct, you're, you know, um, what's the word? You know, my version of direct might be someone else's version of me being shrill, you know, it's just, you you have to just kind of take it. But I've, there's been lots of articles written about me, or not lots, but I've seen stuff about me, kind of the way I might interrogate someone and, and, and that gets picked up in a way that, say, another male political editor might do exactly the same thing and that's totally acceptable. But you, you in the end, you know, when it, when it first happened to me... Um, I was very upset and um, it really threw me because I kind of had this sort of, you know, I was sort of trending on Twitter because I'd asked Boris Johnson a question at a press conference and it had been very robust. And a lot of people got very upset. Lots of people, you know, you you always do these sort of polarised. So loads of people thought it was brilliant. Loads of people thought it was awful. I'm sitting there going, the guy wants to be prime minister. My job's to ask him a really difficult question because he wants to lead the country. He's going to have to handle you know, not journalists, he's going to have to deal with world leaders, he's going to have to deal with President Xi and, and Vladimir Putin. And, you know, I mean, come on, you know, you can, and actually he powerfully could take difficult questions anyway. And it upset me. And, um, uh, but then I, but then as time went on, I realised it just came with the territory and, you know, it's a privilege to do the job, but there's always sort of less pleasant aspects of it. And in the end, the way I deal with it is I just put my filters on and I I I, I block a lot of it out. And sometimes I go home and I'll I'll, I'll say to Angela, if it particularly sort of been bashed about day, I'll say, should we should we search my name on Twitter? And then and then um and then uh, and then I and I hand in my phone and we laugh and we laugh about some of the comments about me because it's it's so absurd, you know. Yeah. But I think sometimes you know those sort of you know armchair trolls they they forget they forget that people are you know people are human and you're just trying to do a job um but you you have to look like if you basically in a in a in an age of social media if you want to be in the public eye and you want to do a job like I do and I absolutely love doing my job I mean it's such a privilege to do my job you've got to suck it up a bit as well yeah I mean do you also feel that there's a difference in terms of um expectations aesthetically of female broadcasters yeah yeah. i do yeah and is that something that you feel is commented on more well it is commented on because even us having this conversation for yeah but it is quite look i mean look the thing is is that i'll say three things like like one there's a there's a practical irritation i have about it which is if i'm in a rush and i need to get on television um, I, you know, Sam, my deputy, can get his nose powdered if that, and he runs in. I've got to get. I mean, I remember when Liz, <laughs> uh, Liz, Trump, Boris Johnson announced his resignation. I just got in, and I literally ended up on ha- on air, and half of my hair was blow dried, <laughs> and the other half was sort of bedhead. And I was on a camera going, "This is a nightmare." I don't have time to get my hair so honestly. I, but you, you know, there's a practical thing like you have to think about all of these things. 
But at the same time, and this applies to everyone, whether you're male or female, it, like, television is a visual medium, right? So if you look really scruffy or messy, people notice it. And what you want to do when you're on television is you want to look presentable in a way that people are listening to what you're saying. They're not looking at your top and thinking that's got, you know, the baby's breakfast on it or whatever <laughs> it is. So, you you know, you have to be well presented. But of course, of course, women are judged about how they 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 look in it. And, you know, I, I've seen comments, you know, about uh, people make comments about how I look. I mean, the other side of it, though, is that, you know, it, it can also be a bit of a, it's also a bit of a uniform for me. So kind of there is a look and that can actually be helpful because people then record, they associate me with a particular look. So that means that I'm more recognisable. Um, and it also mean, it kind of helps me get into the zone of, of going on screen. So kind of having red lipstick and a bob, that's sort of my look now. So it can be helpful. But yeah, of course I feel a pressure to, I've, you know, I definitely do a lot more exercise and watch my diet more being on television than I did before because I'm conscious that, you know, I, I need to feel it's actually about how you feel like I need to feel like I look my best in order to feel confident about being on television I imagine a lot of men would say that as well but it's just that women are always judged aren't they or, or viewed much more through an aesthetic lens what I like my ideal thing is that people get past that they're interested in what I say not what I'm wearing or I look like but I accept that both of those a part and parcel of of being a sort of a female broadcaster. Yeah. And I want to talk about um, typically kind of back in the day, political journalism, the source side of things or scoops and stuff um, took place perhaps in bars or through contacts over drinks and, and perhaps more mm. in a male world. Um, I still, I wonder, is there still a hangover from that or do you feel like you have to work harder to land interviews or secure... Um, sources. What do you mean in terms of? In terms of getting interviews or or creating relationships in inside of Westminster, for yeah, example. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I I mean, when I joined joined Westminster, you definitely, I definitely felt when I came in that it was a, a boys' club, and I was an outsider, absolutely. Um, and I hadn't been to a public school, and I had been to Oxbridge, and. It reminded me a bit of when I got here, how it felt when I first went to Cambridge. And I also felt like an outsider because I hadn't come from... I remember going to ca campus with my friend Eleanor, who'd been to a private school, and she sort of knew all these people. I was like, how do you know all these people just arrived? She went to school with them all. And of course, I had like two people I'd been to school. I went to a grammar school. I went to a really good school. And a couple of us got in, all three of us. So... So, yeah, I do feel outsider, and, and it is true that there are kind of male networks, but it's also true that there are many more female politicians than when I started. And I remember doing uh, stories when I was at the FT on the gender gap and how the Conservatives going to increase representation, and it has massively increased. So, you know, we, we do have female networks as well, and we have a women's uh, lobby group, and we have um, women in Westminster drinks. And, you know, and, and the great thing is, is when, you know, like Laura Koonsberg and me and Pippa Creer and, and Caroline from the Sunday Times, like some of the senior female journalists and then the senior, you know, female uh, politicians, and like turn up to those things and, and try and kind of, 
create an environment where there are those networks as well. So, but but yeah, it's um, it's a very relational business politics, right? So, and, and part of kind of being successful in it as well is just longevity in the sense that you know. So, say the cabinet now were the people I met in 2010 when they first started night, like people like Liz Truss. I mean, they're not cabinet now, but people like Liz Truss or Sajid Javid, uh, Dominic Raab, they were all people that started when I started and their backbenchers way up. And so so part of politics is is, is spending a lot of time around here and, and building up contacts. Yeah. When you approach an interview, you know, you're known for quote-unquote persistent questioning of senior politicians. Is there a mindset that you approach the interview with? Is it ever, uh, I think they're going to lie or they're going to avoid the question? Or uh, what do you do when someone's avoiding the question? So we, so when um, we were setting up the interview show and I talked to David Mapstone, who is this brilliant journalist at Sky who helped launch my my show with me, and he's just a great man. We, we talked about this and we were like, which approach should we take? Should we take the Jeremy Paxman? Why is this bastard lying to me? I hope I can say that on your podcast um, or beat me out. Um, or do you take the sort of Brian Walden, assume this person is telling the truth, where does it go from that? And we I basically flip between the two things. But sort of ultimately, and, and this is again a sort of Brian Walden, you know, perspective, but one that I try and replicate, which is I don't like ambiguity, right? And politicians deal in ambiguity. And when you're interviewing a politician, you understand what they're doing. They're trying to not answer the question and therefore using ambiguity or pivoting. Uh, and so my instinct in an interview, and this is like what Brian Warden, you know, talked about, the great Brian Warden, who was, you know, one of the best political interviewers um, ever to have to have done the done, done the uh, done the job um, is is to try and eke out of people exactly what they mean. So when I'm persistent, it's because I don't like ambiguity. I don't like it in any aspect of my life. I'm not. I'm I'm very direct, and I like to know exactly what people are saying. So I just keep asking them, "What are you saying?" It's not really a conscious technique. It's just instinctively in the interview. That's kind of what I what I do. So I, I approach them in the sense of this is what I'm going to ask them. This is how I think they might respond to the question, and this is how I would like to try and pin down that answer that I would like. And sometimes you don't get it, but actually sometimes someone repeatedly not answering the question or repeatedly trying to pivot is quite um, illustrative as well. But actually, in the terms of Brian Wardens, it, it is quite helpful in political interviews just to not be entirely cynical and think that this person is just trying to deceive you. Because often they're not. It's just in politics, it's really hard to answer a question directly sometimes. I do think that the politicians that have the most cut through with the public are those who maybe they don't always answer the question directly, but they give an air of authenticity in how they try to tackle what they are being asked. Yeah. And I guess 
with that, I wonder if you ever feel kind of a sense of responsibility for the person you're interviewing. And, and I don't mean that in terms of a personal or emotional connection, just a sense of, you know, sometimes for me, I can do an interview with someone and some lines get picked up and, and run somewhere else. And that can be overwhelming to feel the level of responsibility for my interviewee. Um, so I wonder if you feel that. And mm. um, this is something you've spoken about a lot, so let's not dwell. But I wondered, having been part of the story or, or mm. having the focus put on you mm. has that maybe changed your approach or maybe made you feel more empathetic yeah I mean just in terms of level of responsibility I actually had this with an interview the other day that I did and then it got picked up and it got picked up and written about and talked about in a way that the interview probably didn't want and yeah I did feel responsibility for it and I I, I felt bad about that because often when we're doing interviews on the show the idea is for the, the Beth, so there's the Beth Rigby interview show, is that you're going to do a long form interview. And the idea isn't to try and pull out a grab, if you like, a, a clip to put on social media that then goes viral. And then, you, you know, you've got your six million hits, whatever. I mean, I don't get six million hits. Some, well, sometimes, occasionally. The, the point is, is to have a conversation and a narrative that tells a wider story. And my job in that moment is not to try, I'm not doing it to try and catch this person to get my clip, to get right so so when that happens and sometimes it happens not from you but as you said someone else picks it up and then it gets cascaded in a way that the person doesn't of course I feel bad about it but then I always say to myself you know you you can ask a question and someone doesn't have to answer yeah and actually sometimes if someone says to me Beth I'm not answering that question I might try it another way but if they say I'm not then you move on yeah I, and I also think that interviewing politicians is like interviewing people in public office yeah. who aren't responsible for spending taxpayers money it's like there's a different level of accountability and what they should expect to say a private citizen that's come to do an interview it's not my job to sort of try and pin them down if they don't want to be so you flex it um depending on who it is and yeah and just in terms of what you you said about sort of being part of the story um yes it did give me a perspective about about what it is like to be in the eye of a storm and how that might feel and I definitely think that that helped inform and I think it probably made me a better interviewer when I got back to work after having some time off because I understood I understood a bit better what a politician or, or someone else in the public I might feel um, when they're in the middle of a of a story that perhaps they they don't want to be. Um, so yes, it did it did it did help. I think it made me. I think it. I think it. Look, sometimes the hardest experiences that you have in life teach you lessons which are really valuable to you uh, and that's exactly what happened so it helped I think it helped me in my job definitely so let's talk about Beth Rigby interviews how did the show come about and talk to me about the kind of magic of the longer form interview what has stuck with you from making that show so the show the show came about in December 20 I can't remember what 21 um, when John Riley it was the end of the year and John Riley, who's the head of Sky News, sort of asked to see me. And he basically said, look, you know, we love you being political editor. We want to make more of you on the channel. We think you're really good at interviewing. Would you like to do this? 
And I said, yes, I would like to do that. Sounds really interesting. And then I said, have I got time to do that? Because I'm the political editor. Anyway, that that have I got time to do, two both things have been stretched to the limit with three prime ministers in seven weeks. But somehow, by some miracle, it all, I don't know, I don't know how we all kept the show on the road, but we did. So that's how it came about. And it has been, it's been, for me, it's been, a fascinating experience because it's it, as you said it's um it, what it's a it's a completely different i mean the, the the aspects of interviewing people of course are not a world away but to do a long form interview as opposed to a sort of five minute quick fire at a prime minister or even a 10 minute sit down it's a different you're, you're it's a different process and the thing is is that in this sort of day and age of non-stop media and 24-7 news and and grabs and social media and, and everything like no one can sit and watch anything for more than 30 seconds it's almost like the art of a conversation is is, is kind of on television has been sort of truncated and it's it's it, it's sort of disappearing but then when you think about podcasts I mean think about this podcast people quite like to listen to a couple of people chatting for a period of time in a way that is exploring ideas and so I I think there is a space for long-form interviews on television I think the fact that people are picking up podcasts and listening to very long conversations between people tells you that there is appetite and so what we were trying to do was was bring that back onto Sky News and uh, you know and also Sky News is a rolling news channel right so it didn't necessarily have a space in the schedule where you kind of stopped and paused and there was a space where you could invite interesting people on and say look we're gonna we're gonna do a bit of slow news rather than sort of rapid turnaround so that that was how it came about um and it's been I I mean I absolutely loved it I've just actually interviewed Sean Pinner this week who was a prisoner of war he was one of the guys that was taken prisoner by the Russians and then he was involved with a very high profile prisoner stop and I went to his house in Bedford I mean my editors and I'm in a bit of trouble because I was meant to do a 40 minute interview and it ended up being 90 minutes because he talked about the siege of Mariupol and how he was trying to escape and how he got captured and then being tortured and then being released. And I mean, the story was just incredible. And I sit there and I get to hear that story and that testimony. And I walk out of the room and think, God, I'm so privileged to be the person that gets to sit in the room and hear that. So it's given me so much more, it's given me a world of richness in terms of journalistically. You know, I went from being a business journalist at the Financial Times to being a political journalist. And now I get to do interviews with Mike Pompeo on US politics or Sean on what it's like to be captured in that way in a really powerful personal story. I talked to Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe about her incarceration and then her freedom and what was happening in Iran with the protests and how that made her feel. And, you know, Anusha Ashouri, who was also released with her, told me his story. I mean, it was such an honour to be the person that gets to hear that testimony. So I feel very, very lucky to have to, to have that, that, that job on the channel, that I, I'm able to do that. Amazing. Well, it's a brilliant show and you can also catch it in podcast format. Yeah, we do a little podcast as well. Beth Rigby, thank you very much for coming onto the show. Thank you. I absolutely loved it. Thank you for having me on. 
If you enjoyed this episode, you may also like my interviews with Channel 4's Krishnan Guru Murphy or Louis Theroux. Both can be found by scrolling back in our feed. If you've enjoyed this episode, please make sure to rate, review and subscribe. Subscribe.